Hey everybody, it's Harrison here. Quick warning off the top, there's some pretty heavy discussion of child trafficking and sexual assault related stuff in this episode. The timestamps will be in the description and on with the episode. Hi, I'm Harrison. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And today we're discussing Walt Disney's second animated feature-length film, Pinocchio. So if this is your first episode with us, let me go over how the next hour will look. First, I'll set up the film with a bit of historical and theoretical context. Then Harrison and I will discuss and analyze the film, uh, but this won't just be like going over the plot, what it's about and analyzing the plot. Like we're going full on liberal arts school thematic analysis here. Uh, we'll also get a little help from some of our friends and others who feel strongly about each film. So last episode, we gave a super surface level summation of the history of animation. Uh, one of the points I made was that Walt Disney wasn't the founder or the inventor of animation or animated feature length films. Rather, he made a very specific type of animation very popular. Many refer to this as the classic Disney style. However, critics in the Walt Disney Company have used this term to define a lot of different aspects of older Disney films. Uh, sometimes it's a period of time, others it can refer to like a style or method of animation. Other times it's used to refer to the use of fairy tales as source material for a film. Um, and then it can also be used as like a marketing tactic to help re-releases. And we'll get into the whole re-release marketing tactic later, uh, but the point is, it's a term used to describe many different, sometimes opposing aspects about Disney films and the Walt Disney Company. In his book, Demystifying Disney, Chris Pallant develops the term Disney formalism as an alternative to classic Disney. He uses it to refer to the, quote, formation and continuation of the aesthetic style forged in the films Snow White, Pinocchio, Dumbo, and Bambi. So that's the term we will use in this podcast. So honestly, the biggest reason we picked Pallant's book as our urtext for this is because it, he somehow managed to cover cover he somehow manages to cover the entirety of the entire history of Disney Animation Studios in less than 200 pages while also doing like really rigorous scholarship. It was it's an incredibly impressive book. It is. It's a very dense book. It was something I warned Harrison about when I after I first read it. Um but it like grips you and it keeps you in and you're just like you just want to read the whole thing. And another thing that was um very notable about it is that there's a lot there's not a lot of scholarship on Disney that Disney hasn't put out um, that Disney isn't the author of, uh, especially one that covers as much information as demystifying Disney. Um, and so Chris Pallant, he's a scholar. He is an independent source from Disney. so um, and we wanted to have a text that um, was able to look at the Walt Disney Company critically. So what does Disney formalism look like? For starters, it, as Pallant says, quote, prioritizes artistic sophistication. Uh, so remember last episode when Harrison mentioned that uh, every still in Snow White could be put in a gallery because it looks so painterly? Well, that's intentional. 
animators wanted to highlight the artistic nature of animation. They wanted people to watch it and think, wow, that looks cool. That's stunning. As we know, this strays away from the typical United States-style animation, which was made cheaply and quickly, and moves a little more in line with the European style. Disney formalism also refers to the animation's realistic nature. Walt wanted his films to be believable, from the way the characters walked across the screen to their emotional journey throughout the film. Even though audience members were not watching real people on screen, he wanted them to feel like they were. Animators began to practice with this style of animation in the early 1930s with shorts like The Old Mill. But before that, Walt Disney's short films followed the then-popular American animation style. Uh, if you watch shorts like Felix the Cat, uh, Out of the Inkwell, and most of the silly symphonies, they follow the exaggerated, outlandish movements that other cartoon companies used. And remember, over in Europe, animation was purposefully abstract. Uh, so the notion of trying to make an animated film and a feature-length one on top of that look realistic was a huge feat. Walt wanted to embrace this realism because he wanted the audience to connect emotionally with the characters, and worried Pinocchio would not work as a feature-length film if they did not. So, Disney Animation began to embrace hyperrealism. Animation theorist Paul Wells defines hyperrealism as a type of animation that... Uh, despite the obvious artifice of the medium, strives for realism. This tension between realism and artifice is what makes it hyperrealism. And animators tried all sorts of different things to try to make their work look lifelike. Uh, to capture lifelike movements, Disney would bring in live-action models to move around as characters, and animators would sketch their movements. Animators also filmed human and animal actions and would then view the movements frame by frame. A lot of other studios at the time used rotoscoping, which Disney tried to stay away from because animators believed the end result looked eerie or out of place. And uh, Harrison, you understand more of like the technical side of animation, so could you explain what rotoscoping is? So rotoscoping is actually super simple. It's the next logical step from the uh, techniques you listed. It is taking real footage, uh, like live action footage, whether it be of people, animals, models, whatever, and tracing over it to get the um, to get the animation. Um, you see, it, it's still around today. Uh, a big example of this in live action cinema is the movie A Scanner Darkly. Um, that whole movie has this weird pseudo animated feel because the whole thing's been rotoscoped. Um, rotoscoping has also been used in things like heavy metal, which give that movie like the weird, uh, mag like metal magazine cover feel to it. It, it, it does look eerie and out of place. So it makes sense that Disney studios tried to stay away from it if they were going for hyper-realism. Now, a lot of these techniques were used to create Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but the reason I chose to talk about Disney formalism with Pinocchio is because the film itself is just technically better across the board. Uh, critics say it is technically and artistically superior to Snow White, and having watched them both, I can't help but agree. My research shows that the Walt Disney Company took everything they learned with Snow White in that production to make Pinocchio better. And this is where Walt's perfectionism really came out. Apparently, animators used 12 different colors when painting Jiminy Cricket, all because Walt wanted him to look real. There's also a great emphasis on making the scenery in Pinocchio look realistic. The production crew used a lot of models for characters and made functioning models of 
every clock that you see in Geppetto's workshop. And then they actually, fun fact, did use rotoscoping for one bit in the film. So the Stromboli's wagon, when Pinocchio's in it and they're riding out of town, they actually filmed a model wagon rolling down a road. And I think the eerie feel there actually works because it's a very somber and kind of like off-putting scene. There's also significant innovation when it comes to effects animation. This includes the wind, smoke, magic, and anything aquatic that we see in Pinocchio. Many animators, including animator legend Ollie Johnston, considers the monstro scene as one of the finest sequences that the Walt Disney Studios put out. Um, And some of those effects took about a year to create per scene. Now, this wasn't a cost-effective way to make an animated film. Last episode, we mentioned Snow White's budget was about $1.5 million, and Pinocchio was no cheaper. The budget is estimated to have been about $2.3 million, which equates to $42.2 million today, which, you know, we talked about this last time, is still on the lower end when we look at animated films today. But other studios saw Disney's success and followed suit. Disney's closest competition at the time was the Fleischer Studios, and their cartoons did see a shift towards Disney-like drawings and procedures. This is a notable shift in animation history. Like I said before, Walt Disney's success causes a specific type of animation to be more popular, which is what we're seeing happening in this moment in history. But it's not just happening in animated film. This is a movement that's happening across Hollywood and U.S. cinema as a whole. My name is Justin Rollins. I'm an assistant professor of media studies and film studies at the University of Tulsa. I work on film and media history and theory, reception studies, um, performance, identity, uh, media culture, audience, film going, that kind of thing. So Harrison and I met Dr. Rollins during our time at the University of Tulsa. Uh, He's going to be our resident film historian for this podcast, and he'll come back every once in a while to help explain big movements in film history. During our interview, we asked him about Hollywood and film production in the early 1900s as the Walt Disney Company was beginning to gain popularity. A lot of our discussion revolved around censorship and moral messaging, which I thought would fit perfectly in our Pinocchio episode. But he also said that while Walt Disney was making a type of animation popular and the norm, that a similar movement was happening in the film industry as a whole. Film as we as we know it, and Hollywood as we know it, is not some kind of natural um, uh, 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 predetermined outcome. Which is is in all honesty that that that's surprising to some people, right? Um, they think this is this is the way it is. This is this must be the way that it that it was always meant to be, and you know, in for the first good ten to fifteen years of of cinema, as we know it, there were many different kinds of of film gauges, um, filmmaking techniques, many different kinds of filmmakers. That was one of the most diverse periods of. Um, of storytelling in terms of who was involved. There were a lot of women, a lot of people of color. Most of them, when the industry um, coalesces, most of them are, are pushed out um, uh, as the industry comes together. So what, what I mean by the, the coalescence of, of a style and of the industry is that you have a kind of winnowing down of all of these different approaches to film, all these different ways of telling stories, um, 
these different ideas about what narrative entails, um, the different technologies, techniques that are employed, and the people that are involved. And these are just slowly, slowly winnowed down over the course of, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And by the time we get into the late 19-teens, early 1920s, we have um, a really formalized uh, group of companies, right, um, some of the big studios um, that, have, that have become concrete, that have um, uh, delineated particular jobs, you know, like now we know what a director's role is, right? This is what they do. This is what a director of photography does, right? This is what, um, you know, this is what your sound engineer does and so on and so forth. So you have like the the um, these roles and these institutions becoming concrete um, at the same time that you have the ways in which they tell stories become become concrete. Like everyone talks about Snow White being the first one, and that's good. Snow White was the first one, factually. It came first. But if you want to look at what the first Disney movie is like the first conception of what Disney has come to mean. It's Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Like the like this is the structure Disney built on going forwards. Like even down to the fact that like every you think of Disney as moralizing in a certain way. Disney movies all kind of are like all movies are about something, but Disney movies are about like teaching a very specific thing. And Pinocchio, like, just nails that formula straight out of the gate. It's kind of insane just how fully formed the Disney ideal is in this movie, just right from the get-go. Explain the Disney ideal for someone who may not know what that is. There's stakes, but you know everything's going to work out at the end. Uh, There's some traumatic family stuff kind of in the background. Um absent parents uh separation from family um there's always like a moral that it's about um be yourself you uh or like stay true to who you are friends are your power um that kind of stuff uh going for like you you don't need you don't need a man to rely on you can rely on yourself and your sister uh that kind of stuff uh and just like the general structure of it and almost like you can always kind of chunk Disney movies into like there's this bit and then there's this bit and then there's this bit and then they're the end. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in like that three act, not necessarily like the three act structure, um, but sort of in that that mold of like you can po- point to like this part, this part, this part. You know what's good though? Oh, what's good? This animation. Oh Jesus. My God. This movie's gorgeous. It's so like pretty. it is it is a massive step up from Snow White. Just like the different the different planes that the camera Yo, moves through. Okay. That that multiplane shot at the <sighs> beginning of the, of that first day Rise Pinocchio's getting off to go to school. What like that circulates on Twitter every couple of, every like month or two, and it's just people being like, "Why does an animation look like this anymore?" And it's like, "Well, because it's primitively expensive and takes like years to make just these two seconds of animation go by." And then also, you pe- like nobody went and saw uh, <laughs> Princess and the Frog. So true, but it's just like it's seamless. 
it's so good you just you like you watch it and you're like these are just still planes with like birds on like the top oh my god oh like the artistry of these multi-plane shots is incredible and while we're talking Mm -hmm. about the artistry just the water in this movie is so good it's so believable the ocean the ocean in that in the monstro sequence towards the end is it the way it rises and falls and the way Mm -hmm. it's like crashing into stuff is so believable there is a straight line to be drawn between uh the entire back the entire like back third of this movie like the monstro stuff forwards and about half of fantasia which we'll talk about next time but um like you could see the building blocks being laid for pretty much everything that gets done in the more quote-unquote traumatic parts of fantasia here it's insane it was yeah watching that and like the bubbles and I thought, like, especially, like, when the fish were around and they'd be like, have you seen Monstro? And then they'd, like, scatter and the water would, like, do that thing where it, like, makes, ev- like, like you know, like, when water stirs and it, like, obscures the image that you're looking through. Right. Like, and it did that. And I was like, how, like, it, they look so and, real. <laughs> and because they're underwater, you're not actually going to see the ripples. You just see the distortion of the yeah. force moving through the water. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, it's insane. And just... It's so- all the clocks at the beginning, like just all of the <laughs> mechanisms of that stuff is so good. While we're talking about animation, we need to talk about the the flexes that are going on in this movie constantly to be like, oh yeah, no, uh, we're good at animation and we're going to prove it. When Geppetto's like dancing around happy that Pinocchio's a real boy, he dances in front of the fire and his robe gets translucent. And you can see the outline of Geppetto's like old man body wait like, what okay. yeah Ooh, i totally missed that i think yeah. i was just like the movie's over i need to go to bed like i totally no, didn't this is at the beginning wait. this is at the beginning of the movie oh my god yeah no i totally missed that it's wild like they're constantly flexing like i think the blue fairy as a whole is kind of a flex because she moves oh, yeah. so much smoother than anybody else in the movie like Mm -hmm. she's pretty much animated on the ones it's wild i feel like they just took their reference video for the blue fairy and just animated straight over it not quite rotoscoping like um like uh stromboli's wagon is also they named him stromboli what the hell are you doing stop it it's racist be nice to italians um, but like wrote with Stromboli's carriage, they were just like, yeah, we can't get the proportions right. Let's film it and shade in different places, which is what rotoscoping is. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas with the blue fairy, it really feels like they just had their reference stuff and were like, yeah, she's otherworldly. We might as well just like trace over it and like get the movements exactly right. So that's why she feels like way smoother than everybody else. Mm-hmm. It's, it is just a constant flex because that is just like, look how much money we have to spend. <laughs> look at how good we are. And I will say though, Blue Fairy style versus Snow White, they did better. Like there's still like parallels between the two, but it looks better. My name is Morgan Edwards and I'm a producer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I worked at Disneyland as a photographer for almost three years. 
Um, and I've just been passionate about Disney movies and movies in general for all of my life. What other movies do you like besides Disney movies? Ooh, I really like indie movies, and I know that makes me like a hipster. Um, but I really like, I think like one of my favorite movies is Donnie Darko, as cringy as that sounds. And I understand that. So Morgan had a completely different take on Pinocchio's animation technique. Well, what would you think about the, because we mentioned just now with Snow White, you said technically it's very, it's a very sound film. Um, do you think that's still true with Pinocchio? That's a what film? It's like a technically masterful film. Um, I, I don't just because like when Pinocchio came out, like there, I mean, that was like only the second one, I believe. Um, but like we had already seen it in Snow White. You know, there was nothing really, like, in my mind, anyways, there was nothing, like, really new about it that was, like, technically, like, amazing or beautiful. Um, They did, like, focus on, like, lighting and animation a lot on Pinocchio, which, like, that aspect is beautiful. And, like, with the blue fairy, like, her, like, disappearing, that was kind of, like, a precursor, I I believe, for, um, like, Cinderella's transformation. But besides that, like, I think that it's pretty just cut and dry, especially after, like, a film like Snow White had come out. It's the same thing. Artistically. Harrison, do you have anything else? Not really. <laughs> no. Okay. I, mean, I, I I disagree, but that's okay. fine. <laughs> do you like Pinocchio? I don't like it, but to say it's okay. not technically masterful is insane. <laughs> I mean, I, I get that it's like it's beautiful, but I just think that like it's we had Snow White. Look water, like water has never looked better than it looks in Pinocchio. <laughs> Fair, I will give you that. Oh, like that I think goes with lighting, though. You know, like the lighting of the waves and everything. Like I think like the way that they animated lighting was beautiful, but I don't know. I just don't like it. Um, one of our big complaint, one of my big complaints, anyways, about Snow White was just the singing and dancing didn't really seem to fit. Mm-hmm. And wow, they fixed that problem real quick. Like all the, all the like, like all the hallmarks of their earlier, like the earlier stuff is here. Like the singing and dancing, mm-hmm. the silliness early on. But it's in service of character development, right? Mm-hmm. It's in service of plot development because, like, Geppetto playing with uh, actual puppet Pinocchio, he just wants a kid. Yeah. He just wants to have a son. He just he wants won. to raise a son, mm-hmm. and it's so sad. And I, I feel for him. But it never happened, so he's trying to like. He is trying to fill that void by creating, in a way, uh, and literally gets to the point where he makes himself a simulacrum of a son which then wakes up for some reason because blue fairy we see that longing that geppetto has for that companionship and for that family that he doesn't have could you imagine yeah because i'm right there with you could you imagine you get you you would basically think of he's basically adopting pinocchio right yeah like you adopt a child you you send him to school the next day (laughs) and they get human trafficked like holy shit man that's, that's the worst and like what does what does he do to deserve this 
like the blue fairy says like Geppetto you've been an honest man you've made so many people happy so now it's your turn so he gets 24 hours not even like 12 hours of bliss and then like can we just stand like what a caring nurturing father figure he is yeah like it's it was so wholesome yeah no it's great um that dinner spread he had for Pinocchio waiting after his first day of school, that also made me emotional because I knew he wasn't going to come back. Right. He was just so excited. It's so sad. It's so sad. But also, I was severely distracted by the fact that that butter melting animation was I incredible. I know. I was looking at that, too. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, Figaro. That- like, I want that fish, too. I don't eat Yo. fish, but I want that fish. You're looking at the fish. I'm looking at the butter. That <laughs> butter melting must have cost like $50,000. Just the butter. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, this movie rips. Oh, this movie's it's, so good. It's so good. Like, it tore me apart, but it's so oh, good. Oh, it's so good. And like, oh okay, so, but like, but like, okay, so what did he do to deserve this? It's not what he did. It's like the weird implications of the fact that like Jiminy Cricket overslept. Like, his con- Pinocchio's conscience was late to work on the first day, so he got child, tra- child trafficked. Like, so are you implying that children that don't have consciousnesses deserve to be kidnapped? Like, what are we doing here? Uh, it's, it's very strange, because the times he gets taken by Honest John, the con- like, Jiminy's not even there. Mm-hmm. It's not that Pinocchio chooses not to listen to him, it's that the conscience isn't present right so does that mean children that get human trafficked and get kidnapped and sold into child labor and other stuff that's heavily implied because the ones that can still talk are not fit for manual labor so we'll stick them over here and do other things with them does that does that mean that they just don't have consciences like do they just are they just not equipped to handle the real world what do we do with that so that's interesting because that kind of goes along with a little bit of something that I picked up on as I was watching. Um, so in like the very first night that Pinocchio is alive, he keeps Geppetto up because he keeps asking why. Geppetto is like, we need to go to sleep. Why? Because you can go to school. Why? Like, you know, there, he, Pinocchio has to be like socially conditioned, you know, to understand these are the rules. These are the ways of life. My point is, though, in the final scene, when Pinocchio ends up like coming up with the idea of making the whale sneeze, it's not Geppetto's idea, it's not Jiminy Cricket's idea, it's Pinocchio's. So it's this, like, he goes on this journey, he learns to, like, think for himself, not because of outside forces necessarily telling him what to do, it's because he's gone through, like, these experiences, he's kind of, you know, he's been able to develop his own inner voice and like literally Geppetto's like Pinocchio stop do not do this and maybe like earlier Pinocchio would have like stopped and not done it but like at the end he's like no I know what I'm doing and that's what ends up like getting them out of there get them out get them out of Monstro's belly or whatever so I don't know what all this means but I feel like it has something to do with the idea of like learned behavior or like learned societally acceptable behavior and whether or not this movie is celebrating that or not 
I will say, small thing I did know, I thought of while we were talking about, uh, while you were talking about Pinocchio learning from experience, uh, and the adventures he goes on. The only other time he comes in contact with fire is at the very beginning, when mm-hmm. he sets his finger on fire, and Geppetto's like, no, and puts it out in the fishbowl, and then Cleo gets up and starts coughing and sneezing out there. So yeah, he learns... But, like, you could also just kind of cut out all the, the human trafficking stuff in the middle. Like, it's, it's but I a think, pretty well, straight line. No, I think he learns, yeah, that thing. But I think the stuff in the middle allows him to be able to tell Geppetto, no, I got this. Because I think, like, if literally if they were in the whale's stomach the next day... And Geppetto was like, no, Pinocchio, let's put this out. Pinocchio wouldn't have put up a fight. He wouldn't have said, you know, no, I know this. Like, I know this will work. Trust me. You know, he would have more so just kind of been like, he would sit, he'd do what he did in that. And he'd sit there and watch Geppetto put out the fire. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Talking about societal influences, let's talk about how people are... Well, first off, let's talk about the fact that when Jiminy Cricket gets his promotion to uh, Pinocchio's conscience, he is given... He is... The Blue Fairy transforms his clothing from that of, like, visibly poor and lower class to pristine, Mm -hmm. high-class rich attire which right. is like this this is our moral paragon mm-hmm. and then if you look at honest john he is literally a fox in human garb mm-hmm. masquerading as someone you can trust because he's got the appearance he's wearing clothes that would appear fancy but they're all worn and tattered and like jiminy cricket's first outfit they indicate a lower standing on the class hierarchy Mm -hmm. but we both we see both of them have exteriors that match their interior jiminy cricket being this noble upstanding knows right from wrong is dressed Mm -hmm. all fancy and pristine the entire way through even when he's hanging out under stromboli's uh under the uh carriage going to pleasure island Mm mm-hmm uh, and he's underwater, and he's like, fine. But you've got Honest John, who is just filthy the entire time. Like, there is very much a... it's he, This movie does kind of tie class to trustworthiness mm-hmm. in a way that only Disney can do. I noticed that as well. And then, like, specifically, especially with the Pleasure Island scene, you know, they're looking specifically for, you know, naughty boys or, like, misbehaved boys. And seeing, like, all the things that they can do on Pleasure Island, these things that are societally deemed, like, bad things. You know, it's like playing pool. Only degenerates play pool. I know, right? And drinking beer and smoking tobacco. And, yeah, smoking cigars the wrong way. And then um, destroying things and eating, like being like gluttonous and eating like whole pies just to yourself and whole like turkey legs or whatever. And it's interesting because it shows like, does like D- Disney seems to be saying like under this paradigm, like under the, these circumstances, like 
look at how horrible this is. Like, if you act in this way, just like, because you see, like, the part goes from being, like, put together to absolutely destroyed and non-functional, you know? And he's like, it's, it's a comment saying, like, is this what you want to be if you do all these things? Like, is this what you want your life to be? And purposefully paints it in, like, a non-appealing way. Yeah. And, like, it's like, it is... It is society without all of the things that keep society functioning, which, mm-hmm. which like, no parents, no cops, no laws. Like, it's a very white, upper-class opinion of what keeps society functioning. I wrote, oh, con- yeah, conscience is taught, not inherent, which I thought was an interesting statement. Um... I mean, that's true, though. You don't... You don't get born with a conscience. No. You get, bo- like, mm. you get born with in. Well, that's the thing. You get born with ah. instincts, but I think. Yeah. But the way they, the way I think that they define conscience is through like socially acceptable mannerisms and behaviors. Like if you look at the point where um, Geppetto, not Geppetto, Jiminy Cricket is talking to Pinocchio and he's explaining to Pinocchio, this is how you tell Honest John that like you don't want to go be an actor and he says you have to say thank you for your time like you've been very kind but i'm gonna go my own way like you know it's not like a like this guy was literally trying to like kidnap this boy and we're still trying to tell this kid that he has to be kind he has to be like you know he has to be courteous of this man who was trying to kidnap him like pinocchio has every right to literally like stomp on his foot and run away screaming and being like this guy's the wor- I mean, that's not something Pinocchio would do, obviously, but, like, I just was kind of like... That. You say that, though. Why, like... I think this movie, very in terms of the existentialist debate of essence versus existence, comes yeah. down very hard on existence. Pinocchio's mm-hmm. basically a blank slate when he gets poofed into the universe. Right. He's just like, Hi! Why do I have to go to school? Okay. <laughs> I'm good with that. You want me to? I'll be an actor. Gee whiz, absolutely, Mister. And then by the end of it, he's like, "No, we gotta burn it all down to make the whale sneeze." And it's interesting because I guess it goes to show, like, we need to learn these. Like Disney seems to be arguing, we need to learn these behaviors in order to be like safe and be functioning citizens. But also, like, look at how these behaviors, like, what they turn us into at the end of it but then again i feel like pinocchio at the end of the movie isn't like a cautionary i mean it is a cautionary tale but it's not like he really changes his essence he's still like hi hey how's it going but he's just like has a little more sense yeah he's got he's learning a little bit we only see the first stages of of his development like we Mm -hmm. don't get to see we don't get to see 40 year old pinocchio who's gone through the ringer and like graduated school and actually become a whole person. Like Mm -hmm. we just see him like, this is weird and gross. We've seen him earn his personhood, which no one should have to do. He is a person when the blue fairy brings him into existence at the start of the movie. And I think that's kind of what this movie gets at is you have to have a conscience and listen to it in order to be a person. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of gross. Especially with how they define a conscience. Uh Uh-huh. This little cricket man telling you what's good and bad. And what's good is a 1940s ideal 
of a good citizen. And it's interesting because, like, at the end of the movie, Pinocchio doesn't listen to his conscience, Jiminy Cricket, mm-hmm. you know, to make the decisions he does. talking a lot so far about consciences and the moral messaging in Pinocchio. And sure enough, the message and themes that Harrison and I are picking up on reflect the censorship policies that were beginning to develop in Hollywood in the mid-1920s. Now keep in mind, this is about 10 years before the Walt Disney Company began production on Pinocchio, so it does have an effect on the overall message of the film. Uh, this is the early 1920s see not only the coalescence of a, of a of a standardized or roughly standardized um, uh, film filmmaking style, but also there are a lot of broader social and cultural uh, things swirling around film. Uh, primarily, uh, I think for the purpose of thinking about um, Walt Disney and kind of the the, the image that he cultivated, uh, there was a lot of social and moral panic around what what Hollywood and what cinema represented and what kinds of effects that they 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 might have so you know cinema uh, you know the, the 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 standard the standard start date for cinema is around you know 1895 ish um, 1896 but already by 1907 you have um, the founding of censorship boards, of censor boards. So, you know, within really a decade of of the birth of cinema itself, you already have people not just not just worrying about the potential impact or influence of cinema, but going so far as to establish formal bodies to um, to edit um, or outright prohibit film from um, films from playing. So, you know. Um, Talk, I can talk a little bit more about um, some of the, the, the industry-wide censorship in a second, but just know that although that stuff starts in earnest in the 1920s, um, efforts to censor films had already been going at the local and state level for 10 to 15 years before that. So by the time we have the ni- early 1920s, we have the coalescence of not only the, the industry, but also the star system as we know it today. Um, and uh, we have the coalescence of a, of a really productive, fruitful relationship between um, the Hollywood industry and fan magazines, which really kind of work to spur greater interest in, in fans uh, um, for, um, for movie stars and the films that they're in. Um, and you also start to have some serious scandals. Actors are not, um, by the time that cinema comes around, actors are not, as a general rule, highly regarded. They tend to be regarded with suspicion uh, because they are not, they are um, by nature itinerant, right? Like they have to travel around to different places to perform different shows. Um, They are associated with uh, all manner of vices, right? Because these are creative folks, they're free spirits, right? And this is also a period of time in which um, there are a lot of very puritanical movements taking shape, right? Like the temperance movement. That really takes hold in the 19 teens and and 20s. You know these 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 efforts to really clamp down on very puritanical, uh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant middle class values and actors 
or at least thought to fly in the face of that. So for the first 10, 15 years um, of the creation of cinema, actors weren't credited. Um, they weren't used to promote movies. Um, it's not until we get close to the 19-teens that um, actors that people had started to recognize and ask for start to see their names advertised alongside movies. Um, uh, scholars have talked about a kind of middle ground between that and the, the emergence of the star. They call them picture personalities, which is essentially a personality you recognize on screen and you recognize them across their screen roles, but you're not necessarily, um, their private lives aren't being promoted. It's just about their, their screen lives. Whereas stars, we start to see that expansion into their private lives as well. Right, so um, the star system as we know it tends to emerge around the mid 19 teens, um, but within six, five, six years, you already have some pretty massive scandals, which really do a lot to spur the um, Hollywood's effort to formalize its own censorship process. So one of the big, noteworthy and like most well-known steps in the censorship process was the Hayes Code, mm -hmm. um, which was implemented in 1930 but wasn't strictly enforced like as like the rule of law until about 1934. Um, can you very quickly explain what the Hayes Code it was and like how it went about how it was implemented and executed upon? Okay. Yeah, I can do my best. I mean, so uh, this is actually a question I have for you two. Um, so uh, Will Hayes... Uh, for whom the, the Hayes Code, the production code, is often uh, called the Hayes Code. Um, this, the, the Hayes Code, the production code, was not his and the, um, the Hollywood Trade Association's first attempt at censorship. So in 1927, they uh, tried to implement um, uh, a censorship scheme. Do you know what it's called? No. Yeah, I was going to say, if I don't, Alex doesn't. I have no idea. No. I mean, I think I've heard about I yeah, like them trying to implement something in the 20s, but I don't know what it would be called. Yeah. So, so this is 1927. This is Will Hayes and the MPPDA, which is the um, was later renamed the Motion Picture Association of America. And now, fun fact, is was renamed last year the Motion Picture Association. So, so they just dropped the A. Uh, they yes. dropped the America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So does it mean it's global? <laughs> or I is mean, it just like they're a very local body? <laughs> I think they're so I think they're so well known that they're that they just they don't need to to delineate like what their region is. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um so this was called this is nineteen twenty seven. This is called the Don'ts and Be Carefuls. <laughs> I'll tell you that why. is the they did not name it that. That way. is the most 1920s. So, so this is they they call it this because there are 11 subjects, 11 don'ts. So 11 subjects that they ha that films have to avoid, and then 26 be carefuls. 26 subjects that you can tackle, but you have to do it very carefully. All right. So, um, <laughs> these are these are rich. Uh, but these are but these are a good I mean these are a good preface to like the Hayes Code all right um, which is much longer and is so is so uh, uh, complicated as to be virtually um, impenetrable as a thing to understand um, so like uh, things that are banned uh, pointed profanity 
either by either title or lip. This includes the word God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless used reverently in connection with proper religious ceremonies. Uh, hell, damn, they also ban uh, God, G-A-W-D. So that was a thing in the 20s. Apparently it was. <laughs> Apparently oh my it was. God. Um, <laughs> God. <laughs> and every other profane and vulgar expression, however it may be spelled. Uh, any licentious or suggestive nudity, in fact, or in silhouette, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture. Wow. Illegal traffic in drugs, any, any inference of sex perversion, white slavery, miscegenation, sex hygiene and venereal disease, uh, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact, or in silhouette, children's sex organs... Seems like a no-brainer. Right yeah, now. like that makes uh, sense. Ridicule of the clergy. Oh, You're wow. noticing like a heavy religious. Super. Now I was going to say, yeah. as soon as you said the first one, I was like puritanical, and then mm-hmm. you said yeah. the second one was like puritanical. Um, and this last one is a bit is a is a is a bit of a um, uh, a wonder to me because they totally did not abide by this willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. Now keep in mind, this is the 1920s. The films are. Pretty racist. So basically, mm. don't be offensive to white people. Yeah, I mean that's why they said no white slavery and had to specify white slavery. Right, mm. right. So other things like the the be careful's use of the flag, arson. <laughs> you can't. It's not prohibited, but just you know, be the, like careful. Well, like what? How else will those mob movies work? I Come know. on. I know. They're just I mean, gonna be very. They're just gonna be very like. They're just gonna make mean faces. I mean, I will say this explains a lot about the old Scarface. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. whole bunch. Oh yeah. Well, we're, we're gonna get to more of that in a second. Uh, international relations. Be careful, right? Avoiding picture, picturizing in any unfavorable light another country's religion, history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry. Again, they totally did not abide. I was like, gonna say, went, no. yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. The use of firearms. Theft, robbery, safe cracking, and dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. So, like the westerns? Question yeah. mark. <laughs> yeah, Buster Keaton. Yeah, boy. Like, although, mm, they would have hated Michael Mann. Mm. This is very much of its time. I like that they're like no dynamiting of trains, mines, or buildings. <laughs> that seems extremely targeted at Buster Keaton. It does. <laughs> Don't break that train again. They, yeah, they have a parenthesis in here that says this means you, Buster. Uh, <laughs> uh, brutality and possible gruesomeness. Possible. Possible. No bone tomahawking. <laughs> yeah. Technique of committing murder by whatever method. <laughs> methods of smuggling. No elaboration. Third degree methods. I have no idea what that means. Third degree Third methods. Third degree methods. Oh, uh, <laughs> Torture? I don't know. It's like third-degree methods of what? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Everything? Uh, Actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for a crime. Yeah. But not lynching? Yeah. (laughs) Sympathy for criminals. Uh, Attitude toward public characters and institutions. Sedition. (laughs) Apparent cruelty to children and animals. Implied cruelty, A-OK. Apparent cruelty, let's be strategic about this. Um, <laughs> branding of people or animals. Yeah. Uh, the sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue. Hold on a minute. These are all under be careful. These are be careful. <laughs> so you can abuse animals all you want. Just be sensitive about it. Yeah. Uh, rape or attempted rape. 
First, first night scenes. Oh, like, like wedding. Yeah, yeah, yes. that's what I'd say. Yeah. Because, you know, they wouldn't have sex before the wedding. Oh, good Which, heavens. by no. the way, that is the most, that is the most kind of rigid, waspy way to mm-hmm. describe that. First night scenes. First night. Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on. Uh, man and woman in bed together. Uh, deliberate seduction of girls. Yeah. God. This is just, yeah, this is like. It's the creep, gift that keeps on giving. Creeper central. Yeah. Uh, the institution of marriage, surgical operations, the use of drugs, titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcing officers, and lastly, excessive or lustful kissing, particularly when one character or the other is a quote-unquote heavy, so no making out with bad guys. So knowing – so that's, those are the, the – that's basically the shortened version of what, of what the Hayes Code becomes, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So just – Imagine those things, but made even more complicated, and that's what the production code is. I mean, I I have the production code pulled up here, and mm-hmm. it takes a long time to yeah. We to don't we don't need to go through scroll it. Scroll through it, and you know, understand too that the you know the production code is, you know, it is it is uh, it exists to to very practically try to like censor films. It's also a PR move by the industry to say to you know, moral crusaders out there, look, we are a moral industry. We just want to tell stories and entertain people. We absolutely understand concerns about, you know, um, about moral turpitude and, and you know, um, uh, sending the wrong messages to, to impressionable minds. So within this system uh, of censorship, you have producers they don't just lay down and take this like they are they are constantly trying to subvert the code right so they're trying to find ways to to tell stories and uh make suggestions through um through dialogue and imagery that might escape censors but the audience might see or hear and say huh i i see what they're getting at there right um so they're also they're also often flat out negotiating with Sensors. You go to the archives and you will see very contentious messages back and forth, you know, people fighting, directors and producers fighting with um, with uh, the, the Hayes office and the Breen office over, you know, how much of a scene is going to be cut, whether a scene is going to be cut at all, uh, you know, what the importance of a scene is to the overall story, uh, to character or what have you. So, you know, the... The code is a very contentious thing, right? Like it's an exercise in power, right? It's the industry saying like we have the power to circumscribe, you know, how you represent people, how you tell stories, right? Whose stories get told, but you also have resistance on the part of of um, many in the industry um, to to those tactics, and and it's not just. You know, it's not just the production code, right? Um, it's it's the state and city censor boards, right? So, you know, the MPAA may have a cut of something like Gone with the Wind, but that film is going to look very different when it's screened in Atlanta versus New York versus Chicago versus Albuquerque versus Seattle, 
because you have sensor boards, you know, in those places as well, which do their own cuts. Um, at the same time, you have third parties. Like there's this uh, very uh, this group with this incredible name, the um, the Catholic Legion of Decency. So they come about in 1934, and they are, you know, they claim to represent um, a millions strong block of uh, of Catholics in the U.S. And so they also claim to have a say in whether a film is moral and whether it will get their seal of approval. So one of the things that the Hayes office holds over filmmakers is that they have the power to, if they sign off on your movie, it gets a seal. And that means that, like, they vocate it. That means it's going to have the full studio backing. That means that, you know, um, that it's morally okay. Um, you could release a film without their seal, but the the implied threat there is that it won't have any support, it won't have any resources behind it, it won't make money, right? It'll lose money. And that's something that starts to fall apart as we get into the 60s filmmakers start saying like you know what i don't need the seal and they make hit movies right um like uh billy wilder's some like it hot Mm -hmm. did not get did not get the seal he was like yeah screw it i don't need them and the film made lots of money people were like you know what maybe maybe the um uh, the production code doesn't have the kind of authority or power that it once did. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's an ongoing negotiation during the filmmaking process with the censors about what they can and cannot get away with. So that actually leads me pretty nicely into, like, the next question. Like, mm-hmm. still on the topic of, like, the censorship and this this notion of, like, what is safe to put out there for impressionable minds, that's kind of what p- the image people still have of Disney. Right. Like, how do you think the production codes and, like, the Hayes Code in particular, just due to, like, the time period of when it landed and when it started getting heavily enforced, what impact do you think that had on not just, like, Snow White, but this whole studio going forward? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. I think I, I think it, it does a lot to abet the image that Disney, Walt Disney sought very, very carefully to craft of not only the films that they make, right? The shorts or feature length animated films, but also his image as a, uh, as a celebrity producer, right? Um, as a, as a, you know, one of the, the early corporate CEO celebrities of the, of the 20th century. Um, it absolutely helps that image because they're not going to be, um, subjected to the same kind of scrutiny as someone making live action films about controversial subject matter. So the moral messaging in Pinocchio is intentional on part of the Walt Disney Company, and Harrison and I weren't the only ones who questioned the message that the film was getting at. I understand why people love it. I do get that. I just personally didn't need to watch it ever and I did obviously because that was like another film that like my parents just like we just watched as I grew up um I think it was a really odd film um and I know that the story itself was already weird before Disney took hold of it but it's just odd to me that like Pinocchio is like a really good kid 
and then all of a sudden he just like falls into this like group of bad boys where they turn into donkeys really weird to me like always it felt like that was odd even like as a kid it freaked me out like the giant whale and then being eaten it, or Geppetto being eaten it just seemed like a terrifying movie as a kid and then re-watching it as an adult I'm like there's not really I get that there is a point like about like you know listening to your conscience and doing the right thing but at the same time I feel like that's so overcast by like all the other like weird characters that don't really seem to make sense or have like dead ends that you never like really get to elaborate further on <laughs> like his friend again who turns into the donkey like that's just it it's done would you say that it's a good movie for kids? No, I don't think so. I think that a lot of the lessons that they try to teach are just lost on kids, and you're just scared into being a good person instead of being told, this is why you need to be a good person. You know, it's not like any of um, Pinocchio's like problems that he faces. It's not like something that's like like a teachable moment. It's just like, oh, don't be bad or you'll turn into a donkey. You're like, don't be bad or you'll turn back into wood. You know, I think that it's from like a really old style of trying to teach kids morals where you don't actually teach them the morals. You just say, be good or you die. This movie was just a lot in general, um, for me at least. I don't quite know why. Like, I knew it was dark going into it, because I remember watching it a couple years ago, the last time I tried to watch all these films in a row. And I remember watching it and thinking, like, oh my gosh, like, this is heavy. So the two times that made me, like, really emotional and almost cry, so it was when Pinocchio first was brought to life. And just seeing this, like, adorable, like, young boy, I'm going to call him a boy, puppet, a live puppet, and just, like, so excited about life and just excited to be there and knowing what's going to happen to him down the road, I just was like, oh my god, like, (laughs) that's so much and, like, ugh. (laughs) So just thinking about that made me really emotional. The second one that I literally got chills down my freaking spine was when Honest John and Gideon are with the coachman at the bar and they're like discussing this plan. And I felt like this was really well done, like just the build up to this moment where they're just like, you know, they're first talking about how they fooled Pinocchio and they're like, look at all this money we got from Stromboli. And then the coachman's like, wow, interesting. And they're like, yeah, we're so proud of ourselves. And then he's like, all right, well, like, don't you want to make real money? Pulls out a huge thing of coins. And they're like, oh, my God, money. And then, like, the buildup to him explaining his plan where he's like, okay, I have this idea. We're going to get all of, like, the naughty boys out there. And we're going to pick them all up and we're going to take them. And they're like, uh-huh, yeah, we're going to take them. Coachman goes to Pleasure Island. And then they're both like, Pleasure Island, like, but but the law. And he's like, I know, but what we're gonna do it is we're gonna take him there, and then like, you know, that's the plan. And they're like, but like, what are we gonna tell their parents? And then the coachman turns to them and goes, Well, they're not gonna come back as boys. And his face turns red and he literally looks like the devil in that moment. And I like almost started crying. I was so scared. 
And I'm not just saying that because like that scene, that Pleasure Island scene has always just been very difficult for me to watch. Um, And just like, it was that. And then the fact that like, and this is something that I wrote down as I was watching it, this whole talk of like conscience, right? Honest John, when he hears that, looks scared and shakes his head at first. And he's like, no, uh uh-uh, not happening. What are you talking about? But then is persuaded by like greed and this idea of getting a bunch of money. And even like as the camera pans out and we see the three of them huddling, like he still looks scared at this moment. And it's like one of those moments where you're like, he has a conscience in this moment. He does. And it's telling him this is a bad idea, but he's still going along with it. You mentioned um, like when we were talking about Honest John, when he was like, and like, like everything he does and the implications of it, there was something you mentioned very briefly. We talked, we were talking about how it was like, uh, the, the child labor stuff. Right. With the, with the turning into donkeys. Yeah. What, what about that? Go into that. Okay. So like, it's fairly clear just on the surface that like, yeah, we're dealing with human trafficking here. Uh, the the big the big scary dude in the bar that's creeped you the hell out is is like trafficking young boys into manual labor uh paying honest john and uh his buddy to gideon to uh harvest kids who i think they say this in the movie but basically like kids that won't be missed Mm-hmm. Uh, the kids that like would be expected to skip school, uh, and they're turning them into donkeys because like th- they're turning them into beasts of burden, and they're shipping them off to different uh, manual labor things. I think there's like uh, one of the si- one of the crates that it shows the donkeys in are salt one of mines, one of, salt mines, mm-hmm. circus stuff like that, but. There's a, it calls specific attention to the fact that one of these, like the that one donkey, the one boy turned donkey, Alexander, can still talk. So the man it like throws him into a different uh, fence, to, fence and is like, this one still talks, put him over there with the others. And I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, if he's still talking, that means he's not fully a beast of burden. Which means he's not fit for manual labor, and my brain is like, "There's only one other thing trafficked children are good for," and it's and it's this is sorry, but this is sex. That is sex work. That is sex trafficking. If the kids aren't fit for manual labor, they're gonna sex traffic them. Okay, that's where I thought you were going, but like at first when you said that, I was kind of like, "What else would they? What else?" But then I think like a donkey though. Yeah, like they wanted to convert them into into manual labor because it's more profitable. Because uh, if I had to bet, the only reason, like, yes, he's in the labor trade, but also you tell me that that uh, I think he's just referred to as the care uh, the like coachman. Uh, yeah, in the subtitles, he's in the subtitles. Yeah. He's just called the coachman. Yeah. You tell me the coachman doesn't have like a stake in that salt mine. Oh no! Why else would he? Yeah. How else could he pay Honest John and Gideon that huge sack of gold? But yeah, like, 
there's like that's the only two thing I could two things I can think of. Poor Alexander, he just wants his mom. Yeah, it's really he fucking dark. Wants... Yeah, the first time I so the last time I not yesterday when I watched this, but the time before that when I watched it a couple years ago, and I didn't realize how dark this movie was. When Al the when he's crying and he's like, "My name's Alexander and I want my mom," I did start crying. I was so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's super uncomfortable. And then also just the way that, like, the coachman's shadow looms over the the donkeys that are, or the, the children donkeys that are yeah. not fit for manual labor. Like, yeah. like it, you can't say that shit in a kid's movie. And you no. definitely couldn't say that shit in a kid's movie in the 40s. Oh, no. And also just, like, the... That that just the way the coachman's talking about yep. children, yep. It's just it's gross. It's, it's, it's gross. It's gross. The way he smiles when he's like, "They won't come back as boys," like he doesn't specifically say in that moment that he's going to turn them into donkeys, and like, but like, but, but if we're going along with this pedo, you we know, are kind of a string. lot of time on this reading. <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying, like, if you go along with that string, like. They say it like a lot of times when you hear stories about people who were sexually assaulted and abused as children, it's this whole idea of like they had to grow up early, you know, like it's that idea of like shattering your childhood. So like they won't be boys anymore because they won't be like kids in that mental state. This is a dark, intense reading of the film, and one hidden under the guise of an animated movie. Walt Disney was known for not treating his films as children's movies. He wanted to make them something that adults would be engaged with as well, which accounted for these dark themes. But I do want to say that not everyone watches Pinocchio and picks up on what Harrison and I saw. Lindsay B. popped back with another one of her sound opinions and saw the Pleasure Island scene quite differently. I remember not liking Pinocchio a lot growing up. Um, it's a fine movie. It's just... Um, it was one of those movies that I think growing up um, did not stick with me for some reason. And maybe it was the very... Head, like, hit your head over the... Or hit you... Words are hard. Um, hit you over the head with the moral side of the story you know like lying is bad um you should you should be a good kid and and treat your parents well and all that stuff which is it's a good thing to teach kids but the the story to me was never very interesting um and it's you know like the the beginning is nice you know pinocchio becomes a, a living puppet which now sounds terrifying that i say that out loud um and the blue fairy is great you know everyone loves the blue fairy but jiminy cricket um, another iconic character, but I don't think people look at Jiminy Cricket and say, like, Pinocchio. They say, it's Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> um, he's very much a standalone um, type of character that kind of almost after a while seemed to exist outside of its own movie. You know, Disney kind of latched onto that character and um, used him on a lot of marketing things. Like, I think they made their, their Disney Beanie Babies. Like, one of them was a Jiminy Cricket one. Um, but it's another one of, like, I know a lot of people were um, traumatized by the the um, Island of Lost something or other. Um, Pleasure Island. Pleasure Island, yes, that thing. <laughs> um, where 
they they all turned into donkeys. And um, I guess that was dramatizing for some people. But I guess it never stuck with me that much because I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a thing that happens in that movie. Uh, it's it's not a memorable movie. And I know it's very like the when you wish upon like that was so Disney's theme song for so long. And I recognize that as such, but it's the opening scene maybe is the most memorable thing about it. I do have a question. What's up? Uh, because I want to know what you think of the Blue Fairy, just in general. <laughs> well, that's was, that was something I was thinking about, because as I was, before I watched it, I was thinking about it, and I'm like, there's really only, like, one woman in the whole show. And then watching it, apart from, like, clock figurines, it's the Blue Fairy and Cleo. Which, like, is its own thing. I mean, she's just, like, it wasn't any, like, it wasn't, like, a notable character. Like, you know, she's this motherly figure. She kind of has that, like, soothing voice and the smile on her face and everything. Um, It's interesting because she's, you know, this fairy. You know, she does her thing. Um, She's not, like... Like, we talked last episode about that Madonna whore complex that we saw with Snow White and the Queen. And she's not, like, you know, like, the whore, obviously. Yet, like, Jiminy Cricket, you see how red his face got? Yeah, you right. (laughs) You know? So it was interesting how she, like, I thought, like, how she was, like, kind of like weirdly in between it and i found his but he also just had a weird thing with women throughout the whole movie like yeah, yeah. jiminy lay off the clockwork women they're not into it please lay off like, the clockwork women just in general i was like okay like let's and like uh yeah so that was weird um i mean i didn't really think she was i mean like that i thought was an interesting moment you know, and because, you know, obviously she has that effect on Jiminy. And then, like, for Pinocchio, though, she's, I think, more of a mother figure. You know, she sits there and she's like, what happened, Pinocchio? And Pinocchio lies. And then she kind of teaches him that lesson about lying. You know, and then, then she leaves. So, like, it's she's a very t- two-dimensional character. Mostly there just to serve the plot, I'd say. Like, she's there to turn him into a boy. She's there to, no, she's there to bring him to life. She's there to get him out of trouble that one time. She's there to, I guess, she's the one who sent the message down to tell Pinocchio that Geppetto was in Monstro's belly. And then she turned him into a boy at the very end. She kind of was like, all right, you've earned your, you've earned everything. Well, okay, that's something else I wanted to bring up. And this is off topic, but. No, go for it. So. Pinocchio had to be, like, truthful, unselfish, and kind, or something like that. When the heck was he truthful? Because when the blue fairy, when Geppetto looked at him in Monster's belly and said, Pinocchio, what happened to you? You're, you have donkey ears and a donkey tail. You know, Pinocchio's like, um, um, I, um, and you can tell he's, like, embarrassed. And then Geppetto's like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Like, don't, we don't have to talk about it. Which is, like, another reading you could have of, like, 
you know, like, what if, like, we read this as Pinocchio as an assault survivor and, like, bringing up that memory is difficult and then, like, Geppetto's, like, I still love you, like, everything's fine. That's one way to look at it. But I think another way to look at it is, like, he was never true. He never actually chose to tell the truth. Yeah. Did he? I don't, I don't, I think, yeah. No, I think it's fine. Like, he <laughs> saved his dad from getting it by a whale. The least, the least the Blue Fairy could do oh. is be like, okay, yeah, it's fine. Like, But that checks out the box of person. brave. Like, there was three, <laughs> that's what's getting me, there was three criteria. Was brave was one of them. And I was like, okay, brave, that makes self, makes sense. And then I think unselfish was the second one. And like, yes, okay, not selfish. But yeah, then like, he, it was al- just, he almost died to save Geppetto from a whale. Like, it's fine. He, yeah, you're unselfish. It was just the truthful, the truthful part. But then again, like maybe that's just something that he's always gonna have to work on. He like he's a kid, like, you know, it's, I don't know. But Alex, no. he was true to himself. Okay, that's Molten. Yeah. He was true to himself and others. It's fine. Don't think about it. Okay, whatever. <laughs> also, very small thing. Uh, this is like bordering on CinemaSins criticism, but I thought it was funny. Um, when Pinocchio wakes up and has been turned into a real boy and he like touches himself and squeezes his hand and he's like, I'm real. I'm like, one, you've been real the whole time. Sentience's realness and sentience are not restricted to a human body. Two, I think a more accurate, uh, reaction would have been going from made of wood to to human flesh to like mess with his hand and go, I'm squishy. I feel like that would have been a better reaction. Oh my gosh. That would have been a more like realistic reaction. Yes. Just to be like, oh my gosh, like there's nothing. (laughs) Is this what I, is this what people feel like? (laughs) I can feel now. What is this? What is this thing inside me going? Daka, daka, daka. Like, this is weird. Like, why can't my body turn like 360 degrees while my head stays in place? Why am I so stiff? Disney. We need to have a, we need to have a talk about what an- the animators you put on fish. Y'all need to not make the sexy fish. It I... needs to stop. No! We will I, put okay. a pin in this. Okay. We will put a pin in this and talk about it with Fantasia. Because Fantasia, y'all, y'all need to talk to your fish department. You were, saying you, you were saying you didn't know what the Madonna whore comp, where the Madonna whore stuff parallel was? Oh no, like, it's, it's Cleo it, it's, and it's Blue Cleo. Fairy. It's Cleo and the it's Fairy. It's Cleo. Okay, so like 30 minutes after we stopped recording this discussion, I had a small revelation about the whole Madonna whore complex conversation. Harrison brought up the fact that Cleo is the whore to the Blue Fairy's Madonna. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie in a while, let me explain. Cleo whenever she has male attention, does this thing where she swims around in a circle, then bats her eyelashes at the man through the translucent scales of her tail. Usually this is toward Figaro, and Figaro is not at all having it. And then you have the blue fairy, who just shows up in all her magical majesty to do her job, and Jimmy gets flustered around her. His face turns red, he stutters, and he does anything that she wants him to do. And it was while thinking about all of this that I realized... Pinocchio is commenting on female desire. See, the blue fairy shows no inkling of desire toward anyone, really, in the movie. Uh, She just goes about her business, and yet Jiminy is pretty clearly attracted to her. Because we see Jiminy desiring her, we as an audience are told to think that the blue fairy is desirable. However, with Cleo, her desire is not wanted by the other characters. 
Figaro looks at her in disgust. Uh, Geppetto just kind of brushes her off, and Pinocchio is just oblivious to the whole thing. And we see something similar when Pinocchio and Jiminy are underwater, looking for Monstro. One of the ladyfish advances on Jiminy. Uh, she swims up next to him and gives him a bit of a sly smile and he is not having it. He keeps brushing her aside and telling her to go away. Through this, Pinocchio shows that women should not expose their desire, that showing their desire, in turn, makes them less desirable to men. So remember what Justin said earlier about how 1920 society didn't trust film actors? Well, that is reflected in Pinocchio as well, through one particular character. Like, uh, Pinocchio is set in Italy, why does nobody else have the accent except for Stromboli? I can tell you why, because everyone else is an upstanding member of society, and Stromboli is an actor. A traveling actor, an, an and outsider. also Italian, yeah. And an outsider, like, he travels, Italian. like, he's not yeah. part of this small town, village, community... Therefore, he's bad. Also, 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 can we talk about uh, the coachmen's, like, henchmen that were, like, closing? Yeah. Like, I'm uh, sorry. They are, they are nondescript gorillas. Like, yep. they are, they are, they are monkey people. And mm-hmm. that is extremely racially charged. Like, congrats, Disney. You took out the very explicitly racist puppet. Good job. You know what you didn't do? Remove all the other racist shit from this movie. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Uh. Just, just don't be racist. Just don't do it. Also, fun fact: uh, me, uh, the original voice of Bugs Bunny was supposed to play was like plays Gideon, like, right? Uh, and who doesn't most speak? of the voice, he who doesn't speak. You get one hiccup in there. I'm like, yep, nope, that's him. <laughs> yeah, they. I wonder how much he got of, paid for one. Oh, he he had more lines. Yeah, they cut, like they had a bunch of, of lines from Mel Blanc and just cut a good chunk of them. Why? Like the o- I have no idea. The only one that made the the only one that made the movie was that hiccup. Last thing. Jiminy Cricket asks for a badge. Blue Fairy gives it to him. It's 18 karat gold. He got he got stiffed. 24 bust lady. Come on. Cough up. Your magical entity that can instill existence in and per and like material personhood upon someone give him a 24 karat gold badge do you think he really earned the 24 karat gold badge no but if you're gonna give him a badge cough up that only costs one month's salary come on what are we doing here (laughs) Uh. (laughs) well that's all from us this week you can find me on Twitter at play underscore champion. And you can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac and on Instagram at Alex Isaac underscore. You can also follow the show at dream deeper pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also write to us at dream a little deeper pod at gmail.com. Special thanks to our three guests on this week's episode. You can find Dr. Justin Rollins at J underscore O underscore Rollins on Twitter. And you can find Lindsay at AnimeQueen95 on Twitter and Instagram. Join us next week for our discussion of Fantasia.